It's almost like those songs just already taught the message to us, and my job is done here. <laughs> Turn with me to, thank you, Stephen, by the way, uh, for choosing those songs today. Uh, <laughs> thank you, ladies, for, for choosing those songs today. Colossians chapter 2 is where we are this morning, and uh, mainly starting with verse 11, but we're going to back up and we're going to look at verse 8, and then we're going to read through verse 18. Um, I just briefly glanced at an outline that we had prepared before our study in Colossians, and this is one that Ray had prepared for us, and where we find ourselves within this outline, uh, we have Christians should strive for maturity, and that being sort of the basis of our outline uh, from chapter 2, verse 6, all the way through 4, 1, and then breaking that out a little bit further, we have believers should live only on the basis of Christ. And that is pretty much found within verses 6 through 15 of chapter 2. And this is where we have been, or the third Sunday now. So we should be closing out this particular part of our outline and then moving into uh, the other subpart of Christian striving for maturity. And that is believers should not be required to submit to human rituals and regulations. And that we will be getting into a little bit today. In fact, we'll probably be getting into it a lot Uh, So if you are there with me right now in chapter 2 of Colossians, I will begin reading in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ray, would you voice a word of prayer over this one more time? Amen. Thank you, Ray. Now, coming back um, to these verses that we just read, and as I had said earlier, we're going to confine this teaching mainly to verses 11 through 15. But this morning, our teaching begins there, and, but I want to take a moment just to think about what Wes taught last week. And remember that we are still looking at the dangers of false doctrines. So if you haven't been here over the last couple of Sundays, um, 
We want to just remind ourselves, those of you who have been here, and for those of you who are maybe new to this study in Colossians, that we are looking at the danger of false doctrines rising up within a church. And here Paul is warning the church in Colossae, and we're also benefiting by his instruction to them. We're being warned of false teachers as well. So keep in mind we have that danger that is ever-present out there. And in verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive. And that is a very strong warning by Paul, and it is a call to continually be on guard because there are false teachers out there that are very opportunistic, and they will try to um, prey upon those, especially that may be young believers or those who are not maybe have grown in maturity in their word, and seizing those opportunities to take them captive into their false doctrine, to follow after their ways. And even those who are mature in their faith can often be lured into this. It's a constant danger, and Paul continues to warn through his writing in the book of Colossians. Now, one of the snares is the, of the false teachers is that of philosophy, and that was one of the things that Wes had talked more about last week, and it's called out specifically by name in verse 8. If we look back there, it says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. And the deception that is found in philosophy is that it appears as something that is intellectual. You know, we like to hear people tell us smart things, or we like to appear smart, and so we might you know, say things with a lot of fluffy words to make it sound intellectual, but if it is not based upon the very truth of God, then it has no basis for truth. And that's what we need to constantly use as the filter through which we view the philosophies of the world is can we ground it in God's truth. And if we can, then it really isn't a philosophy, it is of God's word. And that's what we always constantly use as the gauge for anything that is taught. And that's why we also challenge you here and encourage you that as we go through these teachings together, there's a lot of man's words mixed in with the scripture here. There's a lot of my words mixed in with my notes as I attempt to expound on this and teach it. Come back to scripture and let's ground it there. Because that's where truth is. That's what we need to anchor ourselves to. And I want to encourage you to continue to do that. So that's the deception of philosophies. Um, and it can take scripture, try to twist it out of context, try to deceive people. And again, coming back to God's word, we not, not look at it just uh, as one verse that we snatch out at a moment that we're going to call this our life verse and live by it when we don't look at it in context. And we need to see what surrounds it and who it is that Paul's uh, speaking to and what the history is behind it. And that's why before we even got into the book of Colossians, we talked about the history of Colossians and who it was being written to, who was writing it, and to kind of frame everything for us. And I keep coming back to this, and that is the importance of seeing Christ as all-sufficient and all-supreme having rule and authority as creator and sustainer of all things. And that is what we need to keep in view here as we go through the book of Colossians. I think that is the main driving theme. Paul would set this up for us in Colossians 1, and it's in verses 15 through 18 that I'm going to read, and it is said that this may have been sung as a hymn in the church. 
And what better way to kind of put these things into our minds and our hearts than to sing them, you know? And so this was probably a psalm that was sung, and Paul writes it here, so I'm going to read it. But this is what grounds us in the authority and the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as Lord and all things in him and through him and for him. There in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent by him through him for him all these things that Paul uses that points to him who is him Jesus Christ he is sufficient and he is supreme and Christ is all we need and to try to add anything to Christ's work by philosophical arguments and debates or human tradition it amounts to nothing it is a dangerous place to be when we try to add any work or any religion on top of what Christ has already done. And to attempt to add any human work or ritual or achievement on top of that is getting into serious error. And we need to be cautious of this and not taken captive. That brings us right to our verse today, verse 11. And I'm going to read this once more, and then we'll unpack it together. In him also you were circumcised with circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In, in view here now is the false teaching of legalism. And we know by many of Paul's other letters that the main teaching of the Judaizers or the religious authorities of that time was that they would demand that one be circumcised in order to be considered saved. Is that this was an extra work added in to your salvation. Even those who were so-called Christians would try to enforce this ritualistic part of the ceremonial law upon people in order to claim that they were saved. And the ceremonial act of circumcision was part of God's law. And it was something that every Jewish boy took part of on the eighth day of his birth. And you can find that in Leviticus chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. And this was an outward expression that you belong to the covenant nation Israel. I say it happened to every Jewish boy. It took part on the eighth day. Um, the, the meaning behind it, that outward expression, is found in Genesis 17, 10 through 14, of why it was necessary and why it was part of God's law, that they had been set apart for as, as his people, as those who were called to him. And one out, outward aspect of this was that it recognizes that man was also born sinful and that he needed cleansing from his sinful nature. John MacArthur writes, the cutting away of the male foreskin on the reproductive organ was a graphic way to demonstrate that man needed cleansing at the deepest level of his being. And no other part of the human anatomy so demonstrates that depth of sin. 
And so it was conventional, or it was covenantal, right? And it illustrated the much greater need of the human condition, and that was that we need to be cleansed. What do we need to be cleansed of? That human condition, that nature that we were born into, and that is our sin. And that though the act of circumcision itself is an outward expression, there was a spiritual application to be seen in it all along. And spiritual leaders in the Old Testament wrote of a greater spiritual need, which provides the pointer for, um, for, for us when we're reading the Old Testament, pointing ahead to the New Testament, the new covenant that is found in Christ. In fact, Moses would command the people of Israel this way. It's found in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. If you want to turn there with me. Deuteronomy chapter 30. And that is verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So Moses here writing in the Old Testament understanding the physical act of circumcision was more in that pointing ahead of this cleansing that we needed. What we really need is that the Lord would circumcise our heart and the heart of our offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. This is a spiritual effect. And the Lord also speaking through Jeremiah in Jeremiah 4, 4, you don't have to turn there. It says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. O men of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. And even though scripture was clear that there was a far greater need for the circumcision of the heart, many of the Judaizers, and again, I'm talking about some who had become so-called Christians, they would try and include the physical circumcision as a means of salvation. This is so ingrained in their culture and part of their ceremonial practice that they just took it with them into Christianity and they're saying, you don't only need Christ, you need this along with it. And again, that serious error, and Paul is warning against us, don't let this take you captive. It does not save. And coming back to the Old Testament, we see in the experience of Abraham, the illustration that it does not save. And Paul references back to Old Testament when the promise was made to Abraham. If you look at Romans chapter 4, verse 11, I'm in the, old, I'm in the New Testament, but Paul is referencing back to the Old Testament here. Looking at Abraham, Romans chapter 4, verses 11 through 12. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose, purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. That God credited Abraham righteousness by his faith long before he was circumcised. 
And Paul uses this to demonstrate that it was by his faith that he was credited with righteousness on no account of his work of circumcision. That took place later. That was a sign, that was a seal that God gave them pointing to the greater need of the cleansing of her heart and also pointing to the fulfillment that would be found in Jesus Christ, our Messiah. So we have Paul telling us there that his circumcision was the outward sign of a heart already made righteous by his faith. And so for those of us who are believers today, we are in no way obligated to adhere to the ceremonial act of circumcision because we have already been circumcised with a circumcision not made by hands. Coming back to what Paul tells us in verse 11 there, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And this idea of putting off the body of flesh speaks to this sinful fallen nature which totally dominated us before salvation. We were all lost in sin. We were of a depraved heart. But in Christ now we are given a new nature. And it doesn't mean that we aren't going to be tempted by the things of our old life and that we're not going to fall from time to time into sin and fall short of the glory of God. But it certainly should be that our life looks different now that we are in Christ. Without Christ, this is who we lived, or this is how we lived. This is the pattern of our life, and it was marked by sin. And now in Christ, through a relationship with God the Father, through Christ, now what defines us and what marks our life is no, matter, no longer a pattern of sin, but rather a pattern of righteousness that we are able to live by because of the Spirit that indwells us and gives us the ability to have that life, that regenerative life that we possess in Christ. In Romans 5.19, it says, For as by the one man's disobedient, disobedience, the many were made sinners, the one man's disobedience, Adam, it's who we all descended from. That's where we inherit our sin nature from. We are all fallen because of the sin of Adam. And then we all sin because of that line of sin that we are born into. But then, so by the one man's obedience, the one man, Jesus Christ, obedience, the many will be made righteous. It should be clear to us here that this is not a physical thing. This is, this is spiritual Philippians 3.3, Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. This image of a new and clean heart that we have been given should bring rejoicing into our lives. And this should be an overwhelming sense of joy that we have in knowing that we are forgiven. This is what it is to be those of the circumcision of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, go ahead and turn there with me. I'm not going to read it all, but I am going to reference it here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And starting with verse 9. And I'm going to jump ahead here in a little bit to verse 11. I'm just going to paraphrase this a little bit because Paul lists out all these sins that we once walked in, the things that marked our life as a continual pattern of who we were apart from Christ. It was things like sexual immorality, idolatry, homosexuality, greed, drunkenness. And he says that those who walk in them are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. But then we get to verse 11, and I love what comes in here in this passage, that all these things that we were lost in that earned us what we deserved, which was perishing in an eternal death in hell, 
But here in verse 11, and such were some of you. This is what defined you before. That was you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And this we understand to be a spiritual washing of the renewing of our heart and not anything done with our efforts, but it's of God's. And then verse 12, coming back to Colossians now, verse, chapter two, verse 12, it us, presents us with another aspect of this spiritual cleansing or that putting off the body of flesh. And that's found here where it says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you are also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now you might find someone or some, some people who would immediately latch on to this verse as proof text that one must take part in water baptism for our salvation to be real. And we as a church recognize that baptism is important. It is part of our ordinance to be observed only by the one who has made a sincere profession in faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And it is a way we demonstrate and that we make public what Christ has already done for us and the change that we have already undergone in salvation, the regeneration aspect of our our salvation, that we are now dead to the life we once lived and now we're raised to walk in a newness of life in Christ. And if you want to look to an outward expression to demonstrate that circumcision of the heart that has occurred or that has taken place, it is seen in the physical observance of baptism, but the baptism is of no effect to your salvation. Salvation has taken place. But going into the physical waters of baptism, coming out again does nothing to save you. And that is not what Paul is saying here. And remember, we come back to context, and context is king. And so when we bring in the spiritual context of circumcision in the preceding verse, we shouldn't think that all of a sudden Paul has jumped off the track here and said, I'm now talking about something that is physical. But we are still in that spiritual vein of what has occurred is the baptism of the heart that we have died to our sin and that we are now raised with him in a newness of life. And both of these verses speak of spiritual realities, what is taking place on the inside. It's an identification with Christ. Notice that it is with him we are buried, died to our sin, and it is with him that we are raised. And that's to walk in a new life that he has given us. We are identified with him in both aspects of his death and of his resurrection. And we cannot see this as being separated from him in any part of our salvation. That's why Paul is careful to say, you're buried with him and you're raised with him and now you live in him. How many times does the New Testament tell us that we are in Christ? We are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. We're never apart from him in salvation. He has saved us, he has brought us to himself. Your sins have been put to death. The things that you brought you death, you are no longer in bondage to. You have died to sin, and you are now raised to live by faith. Paul makes this clear in Galatians 2.20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives with me, in me. Sorry, And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, gave himself for me. One of the key components of this, though, that we're reading about is the faith component of this. Faith, not just a faith in anything, not just in faith that the sun is going to rise and it's going to set, or faith that you know, we're all going to leave here and maybe go, go to our houses uh, after, 
after we leave, but this is faith in Jesus Christ and the powerful working of God in salvation. Not in the physical act of circumcision, but it says in the powerful working of God. Because he is the only one that can restore life to dead things. And a dead sinner can only be made alive again by God. And the same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that brought life to our sin-dead souls. And then Paul draws a finer point, beginning in verse 13. He says, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul now brings them, brings us into that picture when he says, and you. It's almost a finger is pointing right at us as he's stating this, that we are hopelessly lost or were hopelessly lost. We were dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. We weren't washed before him. And being dead, we could do nothing to save ourselves, nothing to rid ourselves of the sin that corrupts our lives. We could run into the waters of baptism and try to dunk ourselves multiple times hoping that that sin would wash off, but that's not what we need. We don't need a water cleansing here. We don't need a physical circumcision here. Being dead, we could do nothing. And when we were in a state of helplessness, totally unable to rescue ourselves from our depraved condition, God took us and he made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. There it is again, with him, with Christ, made us alive together with him. How could anyone so ridden with sin and a corrupt heart be forgiven? It is only by great loving and forgiving God and it is only through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross as the atonement for our sins. He completely satisfied the wrath of God towards our sin and totally satisfied the law that you and I break day after day. When he said it is finished, that meant debt is paid in full now. And just as we saw earlier with the spiritual application of the, spirit, of the circumcision being revealed in the Old Testament, so we also find that about the completeness of our forgiveness. In Psalm 130, verses three through four, it says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. This is the forgiveness of God for our sin that even the Old Testament spoke of here is one that we now find fully realized through Christ's redemptive blood. Jesus would say in his institution of the Lord's Supper for the first time in Matthew 26, 27, he took the cup and when he had given thanks to him, thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for what? The forgiveness of sins. And if you are a believer, this means that all your sins have been forgiven. This is something that should bring joy to the believer's heart. David would declare it at the beginning of Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And we can know for certain 
that that forgiveness is complete, that it is everlasting, and his grace is sufficient to cover all of our sins. Paul says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. 1 John 2, 12, I am writing to you little children because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. And since his forgiveness is based on the riches of his grace that Paul lines out in Ephesians 1, 7, and it's also for the sake of his name as we see John writing about, then we can be certain that we could never have sinned so much that he isn't able to forgive it. And we can be certain that because his faithfulness and promises are always sure that his forgiveness is certain. It is on the basis of his grace and it is for the sake of his name. If I promise you something based on my own namesake, then that is probably not going to go very far. That is going to probably fall short. But on the basis of his name and his character, we can have absolute certainty that all our sins are forgiven both past, present, and future. The child of God does not have to wonder. The sufficiency aspect of Christ is seen here, having forgiven us all our trespasses. And if you're depending on any physical act to save you, like circumcision or like baptism, then that would be cause for concern if that's what you're looking to save you. It is Jesus Christ. It is solely based upon him. His forgiveness isn't earned by any externalities on our part, but according to his grace. And if it was based on something that we did, then it would not be grace. I think that would just corrupt the definition of grace, which is his unmerited favor. Verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Our debt is canceled What were we indebted to? Our obligation to fulfill the law, its legal demands. By canceling the record of debt, that stood against us with its legal demands. It stood against us. It condemned us. It convicted us. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And his Ten Commandments illustrate that to us. The moral law of God given to us in the Old Testament did not disappear. And what Paul is emphasizing here is that we can't look to these ceremonial law as a method of salvation. His moral law still stands, and that's given to us in the Ten Commandments, the thou shalt nots, right? And we know what those are. We had a teaching with our young children on all the Ten Commandments and what those look like and what those, uh, those mean to us, that they still stand there convicting. They They bring the charge against us that we fall short in our meeting its demands. They bring the knowledge of sin to us. And those still stand. And we can do nothing of our own to come out from under the conviction of the law and the judgment of the law. There was a record of debt. This is what Paul is saying. By canceling the record of debt, which is all of ours, because we all fell short. We've all sinned against the law. We've violated his commandments. So all the sins that we've ever committed, that, that's that record. And I think NASB, I believe, uses that, that handwritten, that this is written down against you. These are the charges against you. You know, if you were going in a court of law, it deserves God's judgment. It deserves his sentence of death. But then it was canceled. How can that be that our trespasses were canceled? The debt was paid in full and God set it aside is what Paul says. 
It is as we sing in the song, In Christ Alone, but on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And Paul brings in this phrase, nailing it to the cross to demonstrate the finality of it all. This is how he did it. This is how he canceled that record of debt. He nailed it to the cross. Who was nailed to the cross? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He was the one who shed his precious blood for the forgiveness of our sins. And it is that the worst about me, that my sin, the worst about you, your sin, was laid upon our Lord and Savior, that our sins were imputed to Christ, transferred to Him, so that by faith in Him alone, His righteousness could then be imputed to us or transferred to us, and we could stand before God, appearing as those who are righteous, cleansed of all of our sins. He reconciled sinful man to a holy God, and there is no other way for us to have a relationship with an infinitely holy God except through the blood of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I quote Steve Lawson here. says, it was as if he took sinful man in one hand and holy God in the other hand and brought the two together by his death. And by that death, he satisfied the anger of God and appeased his wrath towards all who would believe in him. And Romans 8 states that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus the debt is canceled. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I tend to view the rulers and authorities here maybe a little bit differently than what some commentators uh, would state. And even some of the ones that, that I lean on and are, I would call, more trusted than others but I see this here as the Jewish leaders who would use the demands of the law as a cudgel to beat over the heads of the people. Because Jesus would speak of this time that would come for his followers, those who would name the name of Christ. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 through 12, and when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, there's the rulers and the authorities he's speaking of there, he says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The ruler's authorities Jesus spoke of here was likely referring to those who are the Sanhedrin council, not a spiritual force, although they are really pawns in Satan's army. You know, they are being used by the enemy to bring up false charges. They did so against Jesus Christ. They will do so against those who are his we will have false charges brought against us by the rulers and the authorities. And they demanded something that no one could do, and that was to follow the law perfectly as a way to salvation. And it is this practice that Paul is so adamantly speaking out against, this false doctrine of legalism, but that God, by nailing the legal demands of the law to the cross, he took away their ability to impose their ritualistic demands upon the people as a means of salvation. It's like he took all their, their tools away from them. No longer could they say circumcision. No longer could they say that festivals and feasts and those other things have to be observed in order for you to be saved. The message of the gospel is Christ alone, by grace, through faith, in Christ. And it is still very alive and well today. You know, the, all the aspects of the, the false teachings that we've addressed so far up to this point, you can see them in different forms today. Legalism is still out there. 
I mean, we see that it, it rears its head uh, even within the church, and that's why we always need to be on guard so that we not be taken captive. When we first started our home fellowship, we had wanted to do a good Friday supper before Resurrection Sunday, and we started this as a tradition, and we still continue doing that, but one of the first ones that we did, we wanted to do the Seder meal, and I don't know if you're familiar with the Seder meal. There's certain components of that that Jewish people still celebrate today as part of the Passover, and with each element of that Seder meal, it means something to them, mainly their exodus from Egypt and enslavement to, to the Egyptians and God delivering them out and into the promised land. But we, we went through each thing and we, call, we talked about its significance for us in the New Testament and all of these things that are now fulfilled in Christ. And we weren't looking at it as anything that should be taken as, hey, this is, uh, this is really important. You gotta do this every time that, that you gather together. It wasn't that. But we did have one person they're no longer here in Carlsbad, so I guess I can speak about them. I'm not going to mention them by name. But when we talked about having to go out and purchase some lamb, uh, we just purchased it at Albertson's, and it was already packaged up, and we just bought it, and we cooked the lamb. They said, well, did they serve it to you on white butcher paper? I was like, well, no, they didn't serve it to us on white butcher paper. Well, then it isn't kosher. And started to make a, a big deal out of this, and I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm sorry, that's just, that wasn't the point here, but you know, this is the danger. We can take these things and we can make them about um, following it perfectly, these ceremonial things and these rituals that we take on that are no part of our salvation. You know, and we haven't done one of those Seder meals since, but <laughs> that's beside the point. <laughs> but salvation is not found in our relig ritualistic observances that are part of religion. It is not found in circumcision. It is not found in baptism. It is not found in obedience to any man-made doctrine or ritual. It is only found in the all-sufficient atoning work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. And God took the so-called cudgel away from the authorities. They couldn't wield it over the heads of the people and condemn them with it. The legal demands of the law were satisfied in Christ for all repentant sinners who would come to him in faith. And so that is my view of who the rulers and authorities are that Paul is writing about. However, as I mentioned, uh, there's a trusted commentator of mine that takes this to mean Satan and his demons. The rulers and authorities uh, that Paul would mention here in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That this is, this is Satan and this is his demons, his fallen angels, if you will. And that's the view that, that he takes. And I can understand this to maybe be where, a place where Paul is going with it because he uses the same phrasing in chapter 6 of Ephesians when he talks about our this battle spiritual battle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers and the authorities and against the cosmic powers in this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the cause in the heavenly places there it's all spiritual and the rulers and authorities that he's addressing there are those that are of the spiritual that would be Satan and his army um, so it, perhaps it is that I'm not saying it isn't when Paul says that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, I mean, I think it can't be clearer there, the rulers and authorities that he's talking about. And I can definitely get here, if we look at Ephesians 6, that the rulers and authorities are, are not human, uh, that these rulers are not necessarily the Judaizers that are forcing ceremonial law upon the people, and those are the ones that are to be put to open shame, but it is rather Satan and his army of demons that are the ones put to open shame. 
And I, I can get that because we know that Christ has defeated the enemy, that Satan is indeed triumphed over in Christ. And maybe we should consider it as both because those who are false teachers are really of their father, the devil. Jesus would describe this of those who are against him in, in John chapter eight and that they are of their father, the father of lies, and that would be the devil. And they're working on his behalf and that's the authority that they're under. Their master is him. And it seems that uh, David Guzik, who is also another commentator, so take it as that, he brings these two arguments together. And I, I like what he writes here. Again, this is things for us to consider, and it's just for what commentators write. He says, the greatest powers of the earth at that time, Rome, the greatest, greatest governmental power, and Judaism, the greatest religious power, conspired together to put the Son of God on the cross. And he quotes N.T. Wright, he says, these powers, angry at this, his challenge to their sovereignty, stripped him naked, held him up to public contempt, and celebrated a triumph over him. And Guzik goes on to say, here Paul shows us again the paradox of the cross, that the victorious Jesus took the spiritual powers animating these earthly powers and stripped them, held them up to contempt, and publicly triumphed over them. I think it's a good way of bringing both those, the physical and, and the spiritual together here is in view of the, who the rulers and authorities are in verse 15. But our takeaway is not to, to let's, uh, spin off a religion based upon that, who are the rulers and authorities, and that's, that's what we're going to call ourselves. No, our takeaway is that we not be taken away. Not be taken away. And that comes back to verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human, human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Taken captive by those who would attempt to deceive in convincing us that ad adherence to religious rituals is a path toward salvation. It's been made clear that we need a heart change, the circumcision of our hearts, that everything we need has been accomplished in Christ through faith in the powerful working of God is one of the key phrases that I drew out of this teaching. He is mighty to save to the uttermost all who call upon him. And to call upon the Lord Jesus Christ is to look away from yourself and it's to look away from your religion. It's to look away from your church. It's to look away from your denomination. It's to look away from your baptism, uh, your church membership, or any work or effort that you could think that you could do in order to earn his favor and his grace and salvation. It's to look away from all those things and look exclusively to the Lord Jesus Christ. And by repenting of your sin and putting your faith in his redemptive work on your behalf, you are made a child of God where once you were an enemy. Your sins are forgiven. And Christ is now your confidence. Christ is now your peace. Christ is now your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that we can come to you just simply by faith, understanding that the work has already been done, that Jesus declared it is finished, that our debt was paid in full, that all those things that were counted against us, that the law demands of us, were nailed there with him on the cross. God, I pray that everyone here is a believer, but only you know the hearts, and you see in to what is truly there. You see a, a heart that has not been renewed, that has not been circumcised by your hand. God, I pray that today you bring that conviction upon them by your spirit, and that you would draw them to you, that you would save them, Lord, that you would help them to understand what you did for them, 
what was signed and what was sealed and what was put an end to, God. They would understand their death to their sin being made alive together with you. And we thank you for all this that possess that saving knowledge of who you are, God, that we live our life in you and that we are continually convicted as these things are brought to us, Lord, what we have in you, that all of our sins have been forgiven, that that record has been wiped clean. And God, when we contemplate that, we should have so much joy and thankfulness in our heart. We just want to express our gratitude for the gift that you have given us in Jesus Christ. We thank you for him. We thank you for your love and your mercy that is expressed to us through his sacrifice. God, we love you and we praise you. We thank you. It's in his name we pray. Amen.